Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is CM Alexander with the news. Best-selling horror author Stephen King has been declared missing, last seen heading east out of nearby Bangor shortly before this weekend's record-breaking nor'easter hit. According to authorities, King's car was found run off the road not ten miles away from my own home on the outskirts of Derry. What a coincidence. I am, after all, his number one fan. You're listening to Derry Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King Book Club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside C.M. Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. What's up, Constant Readers? Today, we are on part one of Misery, covering all the way through part two through chapter 12, if you're reading along. If you're not, major spoilers ahead. Today, we've got C.M. leading us through our discussion. So, C.M., you ready to take it away? Thanks, Josh. Misery is the tale of Annie Wilkes, a lonely nurse misunderstood by all those around her, who saves the life of an ungrateful author, <laughs> Paul Sheldon. That's how you guys read this, right? <laughs> completely. Completely yeah, the, how that Annie plays. Wilkes, the most misunderstood character in literature. Noble and heroic, I would say. <laughs> okay. So Misery is actually about <laughs> a famous author, Paul Sheldon, best known for his Victorian-era romance novels about heroine Misery Chastain. And Paul gets caught in a snowstorm and crashes his car. He's rescued by a former nurse, Annie Wilkes, who happens to be his number one fan. And when Annie finds out that Paul has killed off Misery in his latest book, she forces him to write a new book, bringing Misery back. And Annie's bedside manner leaves a little to be desired. I would certainly say, I mean, well, she does legitimately save his life. Okay, so let's cut to the chase. A- <laughs> Annie Wilkes is a lunatic. She's insane. <laughs> she is also one of my favorite Stephen King characters. Uh, I, I want to ask you guys. Yeah. Who is worse, Margaret White or Annie Wilkes? Annie Wilkes. Because all uh, uh, my... <laughs> CM doesn't know. So, I... It's a, it's a I was going to explain up. to give CM some time while she was trying to well, process it. <laughs> I, oh, God. I hate that I'm going to have to say this so soon in the episode but oh i never felt bad for margaret at any point i felt a little <laughs> sympathy for annie once once I, or twice <laughs> i can't wait to talk more about that later yeah that's interesting <laughs> i just uh, this book scared me like i i've uh, as i'm reading it i am scared because annie is so zero to 60 that it is terrifying how fast she turns. And the book wastes no time getting into it. True. That's my favorite part. Yeah, it it gets to it right away. And the first chapter is interesting because we kick that off with four lines of gibberish as Paul starts to drift in and out of consciousness and all he knows at this point is pain. And he starts dreaming about a childhood memory of going to the beach with his parents, and his mind is focusing on this one specific event, as if his brain's trying to tell him, okay, there's something really wrong here. I read this book in high school, and I remember it being one of the best books I've ever read. This this was in the beginning of my King fan fandom. The metaphor of the pylon that Paul Sheldon sees as a kid has stuck with me my entire life. As a kid, Paul would take these trips to the beach with his family, and there was a pylon out in the in the water, a piling. As the tide would come in, it would slowly be covered until it was gone. And then as their day went on, as their day ended, it would slowly emerge from the ocean. And he was fascinated by it. And as he's waking up from this haze, where he doesn't know where he is, he doesn't know what's happened. He's imagining this tide coming up and covering the pylon and slowly comes to realize that the tide is something covering up this pain. Mm -hmm. 
It's the ebb and flow of pain. And what was really interesting about his memories that he said his family would always put their bl- their beach blanket right like within sight of that piling so that they, you know, wouldn't when the tide came up and it was covered, this is how I interpreted it anyway, mm. they wouldn't accidentally bang their legs on it. And I as I was reading that, my legs kind of tingled <laughs> a little bit. It made me feel physically uncomfortable. Hmm. thinking Uh, about what that actually meant for him. Because I had, I mean, it's misery. I haven't read it, but I know. (laughs) So I had an idea of what the problem was. Yeah, he slowly through this haze of semi-consciousness comes to realize that the piling uh, that it is slowly covering up is his shattered legs. And that through this haze, he, he has a vague memory of a woman coming in and uh, feeding him medication and and the tide coming in. And my one of my I probably my favorite line in the book is uh, him talking about how even as a kid he understood that it wasn't the tide. it was the piling. The piling was always there and mm-hmm. without that there, the tide, there would be no tide. And tying that to this pain that he's experiencing kind of fleshes out the theme of the story, which is, once again, a Stephen King book, this is an addiction story mm-hmm. more than anything else. Because while he's captive of Annie Wilkes, he's just as much captive of the pain medicine, the codeine-based pain medicine, Navril, that she is feeding him. I thought it was fascinating. And I thought the first few chapters were really interesting. There are a couple of things that stuck out, specifically how Paul is um, becoming conscious of Annie and his descriptions of her. And I made a note of a couple of them. So Annie, before Paul really comes to you, Annie ends up giving him mouth to mouth because as we find out, she accidentally kind of overdoses him a little and it affects his respiration. So she's giving him mouth to mouth and it's not a pleasant experience. <laughs> yeah. And I wrote down his description of her, which is carried through um, in such a cool way. I found it really fascinating. So to start, he describes her mouth to mouth as a mixed stench of vanilla cookies and chocolate ice cream and chicken gravy and peanut butter fudge with a taste as dry and dead as strips of salted leather. And she, quote, raped him full of her air again, end quote. Which clearly sets the tone of the situation, and we know that it's not going to be good for Paul. Uh, The other passages that describe her physically, the taste of her fingers when she jams the painkillers, as you said, Ben, into his mouth, and the description of how she's built. A big lady, but with no curves or nothing that signifies any femininity in a feeling about her of clots and roadblocks rather than welcoming orifices or even open spaces areas of hiatus she gave him a disturbing sense of solidity like there were no blood vessels or internal organs no eye sockets and her eyes were painted on yeah it really makes annie wilkes uh who's just a person this is other than uh different seasons the first novel we've read with no supernatural uh, spoiler alert i guess for <laughs> there's no supernatural elements to this story i didn't even notice i was so swept away <laughs> exactly yeah yeah, yeah me uh, because she is such an imposing terrifying figure she is supernatural yeah she's somehow. like yeah the uh it just after that description when he uh, he writes that uh, that as if she might be uh, only solid Annie Wilkes from side to side and top to bottom, that she is just, she's a sturdy gal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, like, that, dis- I love that his description immediately makes her uh, inhuman. It makes her basically mm-hmm. like a golem. As if she is a, a an object that was created and is a force of nature unto itself. Do you know what that, uh, that part, Reminded me of what another character we are familiar with who was solid, had no insides, was just a uh, a mass, Mr. George Stark, another ah. villain to a uh, Stephen King writer type who was just he had no insides, he just was. That's true. I guess I didn't really think about <laughs> and, that. And uh, that's such a 
he writes such cool bad guys. <laughs> and it's so awesome. It's, it's such an upsetting imagery. <laughs> it is. It's very upsetting. Yeah, it's it's just so eerie. And like the, the little details uh, about how effortlessly strong she is too. Like when he realizes that to to get him home, she would have had to by herself carry him as dead weight. Mm-hmm. Even even just that small feat uh, in a storm is just impressive. It just shows like how strong and powerful she is. Mm-hmm. And uh, later on, when he brings the royal in, uh, yep. when she brings she the brings royal, the royal in, in, a fifty pound typewriter that he describes as uh, her lifting it as effortlessly as he would em- lift an empty cardboard box. <laughs> yeah, that's so crazy. <laughs> It's really interesting because when Paul finally does come to, Annie's sitting near his bed and she's reading his latest misery novel. So he recognizes the guy on the novel because it's him. Mm-hmm. And she he asks where he is and she introduces herself and he cuts her off. And he he doesn't remember the details of the accident or her bringing him in or her taking care of him for however long it's been. But he says, I know you're my number one fan. So what did you guys make of that? Like he immediately just has this sense and impression of her that he's in trouble. Well, it's from the first line of the book, the first chapter, those four lines of gibberish. If you read them phonetically, it's her. It's Annie, even in what's the line? Uh, It's uh, these noises, even in the darkness or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's the gibberish is her looming over him even as he's comatose saying i'm your number one fan i'm your number one fan do you have to look Ugh. at me when you say that <laughs> you guys ben's got this look in his eyes fan. that oh, i don't like God, that is <laughs> don't creepy. Hey, don't make this something it's not you dirty birdie oh my <laughs> that is my favorite annieism it's Dirty Birdie. Cock-a-duty, man. We gotta. Cock-a-duty's fine, but I like Dirty Birdie. You guys, okay, I listened to this on Audible. <laughs> Our sponsor, go to audibletrial.com slash dairy. Sure. Yeah. Something similar to that. Um, <laughs> and the woman who read it did such an amazing job that I couldn't listen to the podcast right when I woke up in the morning. I had to give myself a buffer of something kind of lighthearted and funny until I felt like... I, I was in the world again because she is terrifying. <laughs> oh, that's, that's awesome. interesting. Does she read the entire book yeah, thread by this it's woman? It's just one person. That's she interesting. Is amazing. She's one of the best voice actresses I've heard. Because huh. uh, having the story told from Paul Sheldon's point of view, that's interesting. Yeah, but the book's not about Paul, it's about Annie. Oh, I disagree. Hence <laughs> <and> CM's <laughs> description at Wait the beginning of the episode. <laughs> Do I disagree? I don't know. I don't think I do. Right? <laughs> Name. Okay. Uh, this is actually a point I wanted to bring up. Good. Name Paul's qualities. What he's, is Paul like? He's kind of whiny. He's He has shattered legs and a drug addiction. Exactly. Well, Paul is... Forgive my forgive my whininess if I ever have my legs look like shattered branches. Don't call me to come help you, I guess. <laughs> but Paul is like um kind of a, a blank page. We're supposed to be experiencing this. I at least I felt myself experiencing this through Paul's eyes. And he himself, like, we know he's a writer. We know that. Uh, he's been divorced twice, but we don't know that much. He doesn't, he's... We don't know his character, really. Yeah, because this all-encompassing pain mm-hmm. is really all he can deal with, right? Right, well, and the, the only real glimpse... We, well, there's two times where we get kind of a glimpse of his uh, his before Annie time, mm-hmm. and that's when he talks about the night of the accident and finishing his new book. And then at the very, very end of what we read... Uh, he talks about how productive he is when his life isn't full of the distractions. And then he lists a bunch of, of like the things that he used to do that would distract him from his writing that would put it off. But other than that, like, but those aren't even very detailed. It's just like, oh, here are things I would do instead of writing that now I don't have those distractions. So I'm, I'm knocking this out. Right. When he says, yeah, I can't even smoke. 
because right. when I asked for cigarettes, Annie stared at me <laughs> in such a way that I immediately dropped the subject <laughs> because that's how terrifying she is. Right. So you didn't, you weren't reading the story from Annie's perspective. No, were you? In a way, a little bit. No. I, this this book is a love letter between Stephen King and his fans. And yeah, it's a fucked up love letter, but it's about that dependent relationship. What the okay. description of this is a love letter. <laughs> I was going to say wow. I, I was going to say what's the opposite Sometimes of a love letter? An apathy letter. Love love hate, man. <laughs> It's a love-hate relationship. It's not a healthy relationship all the time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. she did save his life. Like, because of her, he ends up doing something pretty awesome. I mean, she's Fair. insane and wrong. <laughs> and she... She also got him addicted to drugs. Something that Stephen King was actually dealing mm-hmm. with during the time of this writing. Uh, this was in his hard drugs era. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. How much of this is... Autobiographical, <laughs> because uh, he even uses the phrase "constant reader" yeah, to describe Annie. Yeah. yeah, that was super cool. I, oh I my, was super excited. Oh god, Ben, <laughs> you okay? Guys, are we the bad guys? <gasps> um, no, no. Okay, that's that's why it's a love letter and it's a love hate relationship. Sometimes, yes, we are the bad guys, and sometimes we aren't. We're the savior. Let's be bad guys. Oh, okay, this took a turn. <laughs> Sorry, this... All right, I'm going to rope this in a Okay, little bit. yeah, we're, we're <laughs> yes, going off the rails. Okay, so Annie tells Paul about finding his wreck and how she pulled him out, took him back to her house, and during this, he never asks the obvious question, like, why didn't you take me to the hospital? Did you? Did that bother you guys? Did you want him to ask that? Did you want him to have that confrontation with her? Well, the, uh, actually, uh, I, I kind of expected him to and then i'm trying to remember if this is either if we're just before or just after this that the uh the line where he says that he discovered three things almost simultaneously about 10 days after having emerged from the dark cloud the first was that annie wilkes had a great deal of novril (laughs) the second was that he was hooked on novril and the third was that annie wilkes was dangerously crazy i think that's after is that is that after this? It was like the way she just the, the way she responded to him and the way she treated him. He always like once he could collect himself enough to even have coherent conversation. He knew that you had to he had to stay on her good side mm-hmm. and he does enough like deductive reasoning, I think, to explain that why he doesn't. Uh, go ahead and ask that question. One, I think it's because he's afraid of the answer he would get. Yeah. Which and is then fair. The second thing is he's afraid of what she would do if it felt like he was ungrateful. Mm-hmm. And so in that circumstance, I don't think I'd ask. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just me. Annie also tells Paul that she's read all of his misery books, sometimes five or six times. And that was definitely a moment. I was like, oh, God, I'm Annie. (laughs) (laughs) And we also find out that she's currently reading his last book, Misery's Child. And he just wrote a manuscript for a new novel, Josh, you mentioned, called Fast Cars, something that he is really, really proud of and excited to publish. And he's recalling his last few days before the accident as Annie's going on about the day she found him and the way that it's written, these two accounts, his memories and her tale, keep cutting each other off. So because I listened to the book and then I actually had to pick up the e-version so I could figure out what the heck was going on <laughs> like for this podcast piece. But when I was listening to it, it was so disjointed and confused the way I feel like it's supposed to be experienced. When I was reading it, I, I didn't have that same, like I felt more grounded and I thought that was really cool. Like I kind of wish you guys could have experienced that passage that way. Cause as in my car, like what is happening? <laughs> yeah. Uh, for Sorry. me, it was, it was one of those moments where we've had it in, in multiple Stephen King books where, uh, I noticed that as I'm reading, like I start reading faster. And mm-hmm. during that whole disjointed sequence, I was so excited about the <laughs> way it was jumping back and forth that I was just like leaning into my Kindle and just like, yeah, yeah, this is awesome. The way the storytelling is fucking great. I was mm-hmm. so jazzed about it. And it, it plays into 
how at this point in the story, he's only been awake for what a couple days at this point. Yeah, I, I yeah he's know. only been conscious for for a few days, but yeah. he has no idea how long he's been there yet. He doesn't know. He hasn't looked at his legs yet. At this yeah, point. so he's still practically in this haze, and it makes sense that like as she's telling him this, these memories are kind of drifting back to him. So it is very having that like give and take mm-hmm. in the writing. Uh, gives you that feeling of unearthliness of like uh, remembering. It's amazingly written. I love you, Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> Annie finds Paul's manuscript of fast cars and she asks him if she can read it. And he's in such pain from what he thinks are probably his shattered legs and pelvis. Although, like I said, he still hasn't gotten to that point where he's pulled back the covers to investigate. But he says yes. And as he's as she's having this conversation with him, she's sort of holding them like she's not giving them to him. So it's clear that he has to do what she wants. And I want to talk about their exchange because it's a really interesting conversation that they have around her asking him this question, which is Annie telling him that she loves him. Oh. And then she immediately kind of like, realizes what she says and corrects that so gross to say that she loves him for his mind. And he says, I know you're my number one fan. Give me those effing pills. (laughs) (laughs) That the way she can not only be uh, an all out monster and the terrifying, like when Anytime he asks a question she doesn't like and she goes mm-hmm. kind of like catatonic faced for a second and he sees that darkness. But then to also doing those little things like actively like pass- passively holding these the, the pills mm-hmm. hostage until she gets what she wants. Like she she runs so many different ways of manipulation and abuse that you have no idea every time she enters the room which Annie you're getting and what direction she's going to come at you from. And that is so scary. Mm -hmm. I, I wish I was, uh, more knowledgeable of psychological disorders because I feel like we could have an entire episode just trying to diagnose Annie Wills. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Because something ain't right up there, but it's, um, that there's actually a thing called intermittent explosive disorder, which is almost exactly what Annie Wilkes displays on a few instances where just for no reason, uh, I'm, I'm going to hit you. <laughs> like, Jesus. Uh, no, yeah, well, she has a reason. It, do- it doesn't make sense. Stop siding with <laughs> Annie. Oh, on things. Sorry, you you are creeping me out. <laughs> CM, okay, let's let's take a slight diversion. CM. Ben, should we tell her we haven't been recording and this is an intervention? <laughs> uh, I was going to say, okay. I hate you guys. Quick, quick hypothetical here. Oh, yeah. Quick hypothetical. If CM. I found Stephen King in a crash on the side of the road, would I yes. drag him into my house and nurse him back to health? Yes. And I'm not a psycho. I'd call the hospital <laughs> right away. You answered way too fast yeah. <laughs> because you had the question already loaded. I don't what? trust any of what's That's happening right now. I can see the notes on your phone. It says, don't admit to it. <laughs> no, my, my point is. Don't let them into the basement. <laughs> to Annie, she does she has a method and she has a reasoning. Does it make sense to um, mentally healthy people? No. Does it make sense to her? Sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes it does. That is very true. Because as, as Paul like gets more abused, he starts piecing together the things that, the things that trigger her, the things that when he says things a certain way, like he pays attention to what her face is doing at all times. Mm-hmm. And is he starts really towing the line of what will keep him with the drugs coming and not being injured anymore mm-hmm. because he's, he's figured out how to kind of game the system. But the great thing about Annie is that every time I love it, the moments when he's like, I think I've really got her on this one. And then she responds in a way he's not expecting. And then he's like, maybe that wasn't a good idea. I guess we're going to find out. 
because she's just so erratic. So let's talk about Annie's initial reaction to fast cars, not what ends up happening, but mm-hmm. when she first starts, I think she reads through like 40 pages. Mm-hmm. And she does not care for it because it's not misery. And she also, doesn't it sounds like, stupid. It, it really it does. Sounds like a really of, stupid um, fucking book. Good. What's it's that? Stud City. Stud City. I yeah. like, it's just like super stud city. God, thank God we didn't have to read an <laughs> excerpt from it. I was really happy about that. I, I was kind of waiting for it. Worried. <laughs> I would have been so annoyed. It was. Ju- it's just word for word. Stud City. Stud city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I thought was interesting about that moment is that she has such a bad reaction to it because she doesn't like the confusion that the character feels, which is huge foreshadowing for what's to come. Yeah. And I didn't catch that until I read it through a second time. And she also didn't like the profanity. And I actually, (laughs) I laughed out loud. And maybe it's because I I heard someone actually saying these lines. So I'm going to do the same thing for you guys. (laughs) When she's arguing with him about the profanity of the book, she's telling him people don't use profanity the way they do in fast cars because his argument is people talk that way. And she's like, no, they don't. And she says, what do you think I say when I go to the feed store in town? Now, Tony, give me a bag of that effing pig feed and a bag of that bitchly cow corn and some of that Christing earmite medicine. And what do you think he says to me? You're effing right, Annie. Come and write the F up. And <laughs> Unfair. I do talk like that. <laughs> Especially, I will be working working the word bitchly, bitchly. into my uh, lexicon. Bitchly cow corn. I, like it. Is that what it <laughs> I love it. And she goes on to give some other examples, and while doing that, lets something slip something about her past and being on the stand in Denver. And this leads to their first, oh, I think it's their first confrontation. Yeah, uh, this is also, uh, this is when he. I think the first time he pieces together that he is certain she was a nurse because as they're having this conversation, she's feeding him and talking about it. She, uh, the way he describes it, she mindlessly wipes his mouth and he's like, well, she can't be a doctor because the doctor wouldn't notice. Uh, so, uh, a nurse, she, she must have been a nurse and that would explain how she knew about the medications. They've talked about how she fed him with an IV, uh, before he became conscious and the, the CPR and all this. So, so he's like piecing this stuff together and oh man. Then she has her blow up. Oh my God. <laughs> Josh, you want to. The it, that that zero to 60, because this is mm-hmm. the first time we've seen her lose her shit, takes his bowl of soup and whips it into the corner of the room and it shatters the bowl all over the place and the food goes all over the wall and the, the note that I made was in all caps. This escalated so quickly. <laughs> I was so taken aback that how it just took off. Like, I'm if you guys can't tell, I fucking love this book. <laughs> I'm so amazing. excited about this book. She has this blow up and she leaves and she leaves him without his medication. She comes back a while later and she's got a bucket and a rag and she's like, I've got to clean this mess up. Oh, this man. is going to take a while. And he's like, well, can I have my pills? He's shaking. And he's, uh, for the first time, a couple times, mentions he's he's shaking so hard that he's making the pain in his legs worse just by shaking, mm-hmm. but he can't help it. That's how bad the pain is. And he's, like, begging her. And she just stone-faced. Nope, I have to clean this up. This mess that you made, mm-hmm. Paul. Yeah. And she takes an insanely long time to do it. And then she does something so twisted, bonkers, disturbing. Yep. He she she gives him the medicine? She sure yes. does. No, she she gives him his pills, but she makes him take them with water from the bucket. She tips the bucket into his mouth. And he's trying to like not throw up because she I think she even tells him if you throw these up like that's it yeah, <laughs> you're not going to get them again until mm-hmm. your next dose and so he's fighting back this revulsion as he's tasting kind of the grit and stuff from the the, the rag is floating in around the, in the uh, bottom it's gray water yeah it's so gross uh, and he just, I love that he's just like continually trying to talk himself into not throwing up no matter how bad he wants to because he knows because the pain is so bad 
And it is just exciting. It's so exciting. <laughs> you guys have very weird ways to describe this. <laughs> okay. Now, like, this book has given, given me all of, like, the adrenaline rushes and anxiety of, like, a giant mm-hmm. action movie mm-hmm. when it is a man in a bed. I completely mm-hmm. agree. It is so, so stressful. <laughs> it's, um, and, okay, I, I thought of this while I was reading it, and it sounds bad, but I mean it in the best way. This book is essentially torture porn. Like, okay. This book is at least the first half that we've read. It is just so focused on Paul's suffering. It is so intricately detailed in the horrible things and the horrible fate that he sees in front of him, at least until he starts the second half. Uh, our our part two, which we will get to, in which he begins writing again. Yeah, it's pretty dark, is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) What did you guys think of his daydreams where he's sort of writing? I thought of it like a screenplay of the possible scenario, trying to figure out what Annie meant by Denver and being on the stand. And he's got these characters in his head that he's imagining and this dialogue that's taking place. And he does that a few times throughout the book. It's uh, an interesting technique, writing mm-hmm. technique on King's part, I think, uh, because it's a showing us that Paul has this amazing writer's imagination. He's able to see, literally see these things that he's coming up with, and he uses it to uh, try to deduce things and try to figure things out. But it's also an amazing technique in that since this is an entire book that takes place in essentially one room, Mm -hmm. it's a guy in a bed, it allows sections of the book to take place in places that we can't see. It expands the world. It expands the the world, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love, there's a a few segments like that. And um, his dreams, when he is Mm -hmm. actually literally dreaming, uh, several times that come up and how he almost can't tell the difference until he wakes up mm-hmm. um, is it, really fantastic. I think it it actually does. Uh, I was maybe unfair to Paul earlier when I said <laughs> he doesn't have any characteristics <laughs> other than pain and is a writer uh, slash Stephen King analog. Next, we come to Annie finishing Misery's Child. And... <laughs> She loses her shit when she finds out that Misery has been killed off at the end of the book. She ends up abandoning Paul, no food, no water, no meds, for 51 hours. That is insane. And I love the fact that she, like, fucking, she trashes the room. She almost bashes his head in with a pitcher of water. And he can tell she wanted to. Oh, yeah. And then she like like overturned the table and he sees that like his keys and stuff were in it. And he's like, oh, that's where those were. <laughs> I didn't even think about what was in there. And then but in the midst of that, the thing that I was like, oh, that's interesting, was that when she says she's seen hundreds of people die. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is not going to end well for anybody. Uh, but yeah, like leaving him for 51 hours. And this part was so hard to read. It yes, was, it was brutal. Yeah, and, and this is what I was talking about, the, the torture porn, essentially, yeah. of him just nothing to do. I can't even imagine. Like, at this point, he's looked at his legs. I think at this point is when he I is looking so, at his yeah. legs now. And he says, below the knee, they're unrecognizable Ugh. as legs. And having to sit there with nothing, no food, no, no bed water. Pain. For three, three days, fifty-one hours, yeah. and he drinks his own pee. He drinks yeah. his own pee. He he uh, is just—it's so terrible, but not as terrible as what happens when he come when Annie comes back. And when she comes back, she gives him this speech about how she had to clear her mind, and she thinks she did a good job, but she knows 
her thoughts are often muddy and she accepts that. God. And the whole time I'm thinking, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and she tells him that God told her that she has to show him the way. And so she has to, like, she takes off again and she comes back and she has a couple things with her. She has a box of matches, a charcoal grill, and fast cars. The only copy of Paul's manuscript that he spent two years writing that he is proud of that uh, he describes earlier in the book that he writes two kinds of books, good books and bestsellers. Mm -hmm. And this is a book that he he's killed misery. He doesn't have to write these books he doesn't even like anymore. And this book represents him becoming free He's he's free to write what he wants again, and she is asking him to burn the only copy. And this was the one point in the book I had to put the book down. I I was said I was done for the day because there's this lengthy bit where she's saying, You have to burn it. I can't burn it for you. And he is refusing, saying, No, yeah. I will not do it. And and crying. And she's waving a box of Navril over him, saying, you do not get this until you burn this book. And he is saying, no, I will not. And she says, well, I have all the time in the world. And she walks out the door. Chapter break. The first line of the next chapter is, when she came back, I asked for the matches. And I had to put yep. the book down. I, was, I had the same note. Like, that that fight that he has and it's so passionate and he it's he's ripping himself apart because like why am i fighting my pride i should just do this but no i can't give up on this and then in one sentence an hour later she came back and he took the matches uh, it shows how broken oh, he is it God. shows the the power this addiction has over him that was the point where i'm like it went from annie wilkes is crazy and scary to I hate this character, but in a really good way. <laughs> and that scene ends with him swallowing the pills after he's burned the manuscript and thinking, I'm going to kill her. Yeah. Yes. More importantly, guys, we do get the first lines of Fast Cars. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> I I have them here if we'd like oh, to. Go, yeah, absolutely. If we, if we had to go back for Please. Stud City, guys, we're going back Please for share. Fast Cars. <laughs> The opening line of this book. I don't have no wheels, Tony Banassaro said, walking up to the girl coming down the steps. And I'm a slow learner, but I am a fast, fast driver. driver. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, give Give oh. Paul Sheldon a Pulitzer. Oh, God. And I just love that that's the sentence he's so proud <laughs> yeah. of. This is going to be the best book ever. Oof-a-doof. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> I really, I really felt that was important to the it story. It really adds to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but he, so then he wakes up in the wheelchair after that, right? That's, well, he takes the drugs and passes out. And that, so I think some time passes between, because he's, He's starting to think about his car. The snow is melting and he's fantasizing that people are mm. going to be driving oh, by right. yeah. and somebody's going to call the cops and then the cops are going to come and question Annie. And he, he's he been with her long enough at this point, even though he still doesn't know quite how much time has passed, that he realizes if something like that does happen, she'll probably kill them both. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And absolutely. This woman is mm -hmm. super unstable. And uh, yeah, that the added... Uh, ticking clock to the book really uh, ratchets up the non-action. Uh, <laughs> well, the first action scene of the book is coming up, actually, right? Yes, yes. So she comes back and she's bought a wheelchair and an old typewriter that's missing the letter N. <laughs> and she tells him that he's going to write a new novel. And not just any new novel, but his best novel Misery's return. He's going to bring misery back. And the really funny thing is that she's 100% right. It's going to be his best novel. He's going to bring her back. It's... Annie knows her shit. <laughs> <laughs> Stop siding with Annie. <laughs> it is actually once he starts writing the novel, and this is skipping ahead quite a bit, 
but I, I actually do love this that she says you're gonna bring uh, misery back to life. He's like, how? This that's ridiculous. And once he finally starts actually getting into writing the novel, he is not only writing this novel just to save his own life. He compares himself to Shahirazad in A Thousand One Arabian Nights, um, writing to save his life. He gets into it and he starts actually saying, oh, I I thought Misery's Return didn't exist. It mm-hmm. wasn't a real book. It was just a thing I was doing to save my life. But he he starts saying, oh, no, he starts finding the plot. He starts actually realizing that it is a good book. It's actually the best of his misery novels. And so in a way, you're right. I And I want to come back to their exchange over that when mm-hmm. he first writes a couple of pages and then they have a conversation about it. But first I have to, yeah. like, we need to talk that was about... That a lot. No, 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 that's, that's perfectly fine. But I want to talk about the constant reader reference, which I didn't realize was kind of a negative thing. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> Yeah, so he's he's telling Annie what he needs to start writing. And one of the things is his, he calls it a concordance. It's his all of his misery information because mm-hmm. he's written like seven, is it seven books? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. And so there's a lot of timelines, characters, things that he has to keep track of to make a cohesive story. And he notices that she does not care at all <laughs> yeah. about the tricks of the trade. Anytime he starts talking technical stuff, like something fans might really dig into and be interested in, she kind of goes blank. And so that's when that reference comes about the constant reader. She's the perfect audience, a woman who loves stories without the slightest interest in the mechanics of making them. She was the embodiment of that Victorian archetype, constant reader. And uh, later on, he says uh, she she gives a note where she says uh, it's after he's written the first draft and she rejects it. And he says she rejects it with the constant reader's flat and uncontradictable certainty. (laughs) And that was another point that I was like, oh, oh, we're the bad guys here. Like all of our opinions on this podcast (laughs) have been called. He called us out. He predicted Stephen King podcast. Fans don't change. It's true. (laughs) So they have uh, this is the next big fight that they have. And it's over paper the type of paper that she's bought because it's it's the most expensive type because that's what she thought, you know, spend the most money and that's going to get you the best quality paper, but it actually smudges. And so he's telling her that she needs to buy and he kind of gets like kind of snotty with her. Mm-hmm. Like he's trying to catch her off guard. Yeah. And he, he sort of, and Josh, you had mentioned he, this is one of those moments when he thinks that he has something over her and she just turns the tables right around on him and you do not or at least i didn't i did not expect that to happen it's like oh she no she is perceptive yeah (laughs) she is on him the fact that she bull rushes from across the room just charges at him with all of the mass that i imagine (laughs) annie wilkes has and punches him in what remains of his knee. Yeah, because he made a Ugh. reasonable request about paper. Like and and made a point of kept saying I'm on your side, mm-hmm. Annie. And she took that as a slight enough to punch him in a destroyed knee. He, he was lying to her and she knew it. Well, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, so you're saying he had it coming, he, he CM. That's your that's, argument. I, I literally did not say that at all. <laughs> no, I guess you're right. He was on the book side. Like, he was, he yeah. was trying, he had a good point. Well, I, I guess what I mean by that is he's, he's pushing and he's testing mm-hmm. her. And he thinks she's so crazy or so, you know, dense and stupid because mm-hmm. of the observations he kind of just made about the constant reader thing that he takes it just a little bit too far. And he finds out That's the hard fair. way that she is not stupid. And she even says that she tells him she's not stupid as she's screaming and rushing back into the room with her <laughs> fists together and then brings it down on a shattered knee. And she tells him as she leaves to sit there and think about who's in charge and what she can do to him if he tries to trick her. Oof. And nobody will come by to rescue him because everybody knows 
Annie Wilkes is crazy. They all know what she did, even if she was found innocent. Then she tells him they think she got away with it and they were right. <laughs> yup. So crazy. Bananas. It's, God, it's so intense. Let's talk so about- what part of Annie Wilkes did you feel uh, sorry for again? <laughs> see, this is why I didn't want to mention it, because that's not coming up until part two, oh, like okay. our next episode. So everybody's going to oh, think geez. I'm crazy <laughs> for two weeks. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds well, about and, right. And there are these moments as we go through where she's, Josh, you alluded to this, like one minute kind of almost like a normal person and then and she's can be bashful at times and almost like humble and embarrassed yeah and she's very childlike insane yeah. She's, yeah she's childlike even in her he describes her like fits as childlike like rages and mm-hmm. um She's so naive about so many things. And he is so dependent on her. And I I think I'm going to take all blame off my shoulders and say that Stephen King did such an amazing job Mm. writing about this relationship that as a reader, even though I should not be on Annie's side and she's crazy, I felt that connection that they have and that reliance on her and sort of you'd want to protect that relationship in a way because without her, you're dead. Mm. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way. All right. So let's talk yeah. about Paul's adventure into the house. Annie, yes. Yeah. Our first action sequence. <laughs> As he like, um, like grays out several times. The thing that I liked most about this scene is that as we talked about earlier, him creating the, like the, the cop that would find his car and, and creating these, these characters that exist mm-hmm. is that he creates a sports caster <laughs> in his mind <laughs> to cheer him on and like help him like ramp up. And that was my favorite thing about this whole scene. (laughs) Uh, So it's, it's taking all of his focus because he's insanely like full of pain. And we find out that he's lifted a bobby pin from her at some point and uses it to, to pick a lock in his research for fast cars. Of the course. greatest book ever written. <laughs> uh, he learned how to how to uh, pick a lock. Oh, did he discover how to pick locks before Mister Picklocks did? What? Like Wait, the Heim- whoa. like the Heimlich the maneuver? Fuck, are you talking? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> how the lock could you was discovered by Mister Picklock? Expect That's- us to follow that logic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I always forget about Samuel Picklock, that, I, <laughs> who invented picking locks. I feel like the look I gave you guys when I when I dropped that line was you were was, so proud I was so of it. confident that you had my back. Oh, what a good bit <laughs> this is! And you didn't. I oh. was honestly baffled. <laughs> I was like, what? Um, okay, so I like this uh, this segment because, like, yeah, he he knows how to pick locks because of his research during this uh, book, and he's in so much pain. Like, he just got punched in a pulverized knee, and he's he's in so much pain that he keeps blacking out. He says at the start that, like, in retelling these events. In retrospect, I suppose there could be people that could describe my actions as heroic. Um, but they weren't. They were purely self-preservation. Because he, he picks the lock and he gets his the wheelchair out of the door just barely. He was afraid that it isn't going to fit. And the entire reason for him leaving is just so he can find more novel because he at this point recognizes that he's a junkie essentially he is going as much pain as he and he's also going with through withdrawals and he mm-hmm. needs it and he finds a box a giant box in her bedroom or bathroom rather uh full of samples of extremely addictive medicine that she should not have another big wait what moment (laughs) Mm -hmm. like what did you guys think of that yeah that was definitely a sign that something happened in denver something had been happening for quite some time 
she's doing a lot of things that are not legal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at least two. <laughs> <laughs> this adventure, I shouldn't call it an adventure. That's kind of like, that's kind of gross. This <laughs> terrible journey <laughs> outside of his room to find the painkillers and him picking that lock, it's so excruciating. And it, it's a large, I mean, it's a long part. You're mm-hmm. on the edge of your seat mm-hmm. reading this or listening to it, wondering what's going to happen. He even has, like he, I don't know if he hallucinates or he falls asleep in dreams, but he's in the hallway, I think, and he imagines that Annie is there. Yeah, yeah this is one of those, out. those dream sequences I mentioned earlier that he, he grays out because he's exerting himself so much and when he he comes to annie is standing over him with a shotgun pointed at his head and says if you wanted your freedom paul all you had to do was ask for it and then as she pulls the triggers he wakes up and realizes she's not actually Mm -hmm. there but she could come home at any second because he doesn't know how long he's been out yeah and he doesn't know how far she has to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He has no concept of, of time anymore as far as anything outside this house mm-hmm. now, mostly outside his room. And the only the only way he knows that time has even passed throughout this, as we mentioned, you know, 51 hours, is that he can there's a cuckoo clock or something and he hears, yeah, he hears every hour. Yep. And so he finds the meds and he takes a couple boxes and then he goes out into mm-hmm. the rest of the house and he sees a telephone. And he's going to try the telephone. He knocks over a tiny penguin Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, and catches it, which I thought was kind of cool because he had taken the medicine. As soon as he found Mm -hmm. it, he took four pills, which is more than he definitely should have. And he knocks over this tiny penguin and he just described without thinking of it. He reaches out and catches it, but freaks out because he's like, if that would have broken, I would be fucked. Yeah. But he puts it back and then he goes over to the telephone. He's yeah. like, I'm too stoned for this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and of course, the phone is dead. The phone does not work. She and so, glued the jack shot. Well, that's oh, his that's what theory. he imagined. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I guess that wasn't real. Because it? <laughs> it's all like his the whole thing about her keeping up appearances. Yeah. Right. So he hears her car coming back and he's like getting back to his room as fast as he can. It's very painful to read about. Um, she comes in. He realizes he got back to his room and he got the door shut and locked. Didn't take the boxes of pills out of his yeah. lap. So he's got his hands in his lap covering him. She comes in. He's like exerted so much energy. Looks just terrible. And she's like, oh, my gosh, you know, what is wrong? Are you OK? And she asks him why he has his hands in his lap. And I was like, how is he going to get out of this? And yep. he just starts sobbing. And he says, Please, Annie, I've held it for so long. I didn't want to make a mess. And she kind of has, she like softens, like, oh, mean old Annie left you. And she goes and gets in the bedpan. So then every time they describe Annie as acting maternally, mm -hmm. barf. (laughs) (laughs) So we come to part two, and we're going to get just, we're going to go a few minutes into this because it's not, part two is not quite halfway through the book. So at this point, Paul has started to type. And he's written a few pages, and they suck. <laughs> I remember, yeah, because yeah, yeah. you get excerpts of them, and they are not good. And I remember thinking, his misery books aren't very good. Like, they're really <laughs> cheap. Yeah, he, he, I mean, that's the reason he hates the misery books, is mm-hmm. they are cheap Harlequin romance novels. Mm-hmm. They're crappy uh, supermarket paperbacks that you your mom would read and uh, he hates them and you get this long segment of one and it's very cheesy and really cheesy. I love all the handwritten ends in it though. (laughs) Yeah. uh, That was just such a nice touch. (laughs) It really is. But Annie says that it's not right. She says it's a cheat. Yeah. She says it's cheap and she explains about the, the, the weekly movie shorts. Chapter plays. The chapter plays. Serials. Yeah. As, uh, <clears throat> and that, uh, how furious, she tells that story about Rocket Man. Yeah, mm-hmm. when she yeah. was a girl, she'd go to the theater with yeah. her brother. and she had to be like almost dragged out of the theater because the episode was ended on a cliffhanger. And when it came back, they like worked around the cliffhanger to make him, make him escape. And she was like, that's not how it happened. That's not it. Because he wrote kind of an alternate universe Mm-hmm. version of this story where they're like wouldn't it have been terrible if misery died right uh and so 
and because this book is just for her. She makes it very mm-hmm. clear that no one will read this book but me. This is my book. And so I I understood his thought process of like, all right, let's just pretend this thing she hated never happened. And he ad- he adds her into the book. Yeah. Which I she thought loves was a it. funny, funny touch. Yeah. And then she she explains all this and he's like, yeah, yeah, I guess that that is a cheat. So um, I'll get to work. <laughs> yeah, she's he realizes she's right. And so he knocks out like we get seven chapters then yep. of his new start and it's interesting like i'm it's like very cool. good. I, would, I would i read i would read misery and she makes an interesting suggestion she tells him what if it was a bee what did you guys think about her because uh, he kind of dismisses it at first like yeah sort of explaining how misery yeah she yeah. was buried yeah. alive yeah and they all think she's dead and they're going to rescue her from her grave is how the story goes. And she loves the story. Like she uh, thinks it's great. Everything is written. And then just on her way out. What if it's bees? <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I thought that was cool because it's the, the way it's not a demand. It's not mm-hmm. a, uh, I had an idea, put my idea in your book. Yeah. yeah. It is simply, she, she's described as being in awe of him while he's writing that she knows that she is not a part of this creative process. Um, she she almost acts as though Paul is godlike. That's why she got so mad that Misery died, is that Paul killed her. Yeah, because and, Paul mm-hmm. is the god of the story. The way she treats him when she's not being totally crazy is sort of that illustrates you know her suggestion and the way she gave it that relationship again between Mm -hmm. the writer and the fan there are two things in this in the book of of his misery story that i thought were like really interesting the one that i loved the most was that he describes the one character's emotional pain the same way he describes his physical pain with the tide Mm -hmm. yeah the whole tide coming in i thought i was like it was so cool to see that uh, him work that into it. Cause it, you can tell he's really putting himself into the story uh, because he also before, just before that he talks about the process of getting an, getting an idea versus having an idea. Right. Uh, and he's really like, now that he's hit that stride, like he's putting so much of himself on the page that whether he realizes it or not, the thing he's been thinking about his pain, he has worked into uh, this story and I just thought that was really really awesome of King to to slip in there I also like that in the second draft which is much darker he says it's much darker and more gruesome than mm-hmm. any of the other misery books it's a gothic story yeah. uh, instead of writing in Annie uh, into the book as the night nurse he just has a doctor character casually mention that the Roymond baby died. Yeah! Which the Roydmans are a neighbor of Annie's that she hates. <laughs> yes! I missed, I missed that. that. I made that <laughs> note too. I thought was an amazing allusion to that he's still um, trying to like uh, appease Annie mm-hmm. to like uh, make this, you know, pander to her. But in this darker version of the story, he's doing it in a darker way. Yeah. I thought was awesome. That is really good. And he panders to her in another way, too, which has two purposes. He sees over the next course, there's like a couple days that go by as he's writing, and he realizes that he left marks on the door when he Mm -hmm, put his mm -hmm. wheelchair through. And he's terrified that she's going to see that and know that he left his room. And as this is happening, somebody pulls up in the driveway and it's somebody from the Some city guy. delivering a yeah. notice to Annie that she hasn't paid her property taxes. And if she doesn't pay them by like noon that day, they're going to put a lien on her property. So Paul tells her to take the money in his wallet and pay it because mm-hmm. he, he says, consider it a down payment for everything you've done for me. Right. And he wants to get rid of her so he can clean up the wheelchair. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's... uh, But I also think it's important to note that that person didn't just show up. She gagged him, handcuffed him to the bed, and then said, if you make a sound, I'll kill him, then you, then myself. I'm not trying to downplay. SCM sides with Annie on every (laughs) angle she takes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But yeah, in, uh, in his... 
his situation, yeah, Paul does do this and plays it off as this Annie, uh, what does he say? If you don't think I'm grateful for everything you've done for me, you're crazy. Uh, which I thought was funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he, he plays it off and she is touched by mm-hmm. this this act of selflessness, selflessness or gratitude or I guess. gratitude and she's touched by it and she she won't even take the money out of his wallet she gives him his wallet and takes the money out and he gives it to her and she leaves and as she's leaving she turns and says i love you paul gross gross <laughs> Super yeah, gross. 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 Totally gross. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling you have uh, an alternate headcanon. You're like working <laughs> on your misery slash fiction uh, in a secret notebook no, somewhere. No, it's you guys, you accused me and I kind of, re- I thought, are they a little bit right? And I, the only thing you can do is just double down on yeah. it. Steer right into it. Uh, I like it. All right, well, that is it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us for our next episode for part two of Misery, which will cover the rest of the book. For Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, I am Joshua Kahn, reminding you that there comes a point when the very discussion of pain becomes redundant. No one knows there is pain the size of this in the world. No one. It is like being possessed by demons. Hey everyone, Sam Alexander here. We hope you enjoyed part one of Misery. We'd like to give a shout out to Paul Ferguson for suggesting this book. We're all really into it so far. Although I'm not sure why Josh and Ben gave me such a hard time about Annie Wilkes. You know, I would name my next cat Misery. Is that weird? Have any of you named your pets after a Stephen King character? Tell us on our Facebook and Instagram at Dairy Public Radio or Twitter at Dairy Public. You can also send any questions or comments to our email, dairypublicradio at gmail.com. And you can listen to Dairy Public Radio everywhere you listen to podcasts. Please like and subscribe, and we would really appreciate it if you'd leave us a review on iTunes so more people can find us. Even if your review is just the name of your favorite Stephen King book. That's it for now. Goodbye, you dirty birdies.